0: This episode is brought to you by Treasure Data. I think a known is, is that consumers for as long as humans have been in cities and such love shopping. It's something that's fun to do. So I don't believe that's going anywhere. I don't believe that that's gonna shift 100% online because I think the act of shopping is like a fun activity. It's not just consuming, it's the act of shopping and exploring and touching and feeling and it's like something you do. So I I don't think that's going anywhere. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host,
1: alicia esposito we've all seen a lot of change to the industry over the past 10 months i know that but i truly do believe that at the end of the day the store will be important sure what the store experience will look like that's still a question to be answered right i mean there will always be changes to regulations to safety guidelines at least for the foreseeable future But at the end of the day, I still think the store is going to play an important role, especially in brand awareness and brand building. And Mark Bullman, the president and founder of American Field, certainly agrees with me. He has a lot of experience building a brand, ball and buck, has helped execute more than 50 pop-up activations, and has developed the company's flagship store, and now with AF or American field, he's helping to reimagine the shopping experience so it's more community driven, curating up and coming brands with established brands and really creating that immersive community driven experience that consumers crave. So during our discussion, we get into his history, some of his lessons with Ball and Buck and how that has helped shape the AF business. And most of all, how they have used the current situation as a opportunity to expand and even digitize the AF business. It's truly a fascinating story of a business pivoting, but also some fantastic lessons for any brand executive as they start to shape and bring their 2021 strategy to life. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time and being on the show. Great to have you. Thanks for having me on. So you have quite a history in retail and specifically building businesses from the ground up. I love to talk to people like you. So let's start the conversation with you sharing a quick synopsis of your resume and kind of how you got to where you are today.
0: Of course. Yeah. So I grew up in Atlanta and I actually had started a few ventures as a student in high school. One was a lawn care business and one was a video conversion business where we would do home videos to DVD back when DVD was all the rage. <laughs> but I went to college up in Boston and while a student there, I founded Ball & Buck. We started off with the mass customization model where a consumer could essentially go on and choose a base shirt, color style, pick a pocket, order it. We'd go get it made at a local tailor. Um <laughs> And that was where the inklings began. So I kind of carried ball and buck through my years there. At the same time, I had an internship with Adobe Systems and kind of software. When I graduated, I went into the tech sector, working in a tech startup in Cambridge and moonlit ball and buck. So I would kind of be doing sales calls and building their partnership program by day. And then on my lunch break, I'd go and meet the new balance rep in our little office slash storefront in downtown Boston and then come back. And then after work, go and build walls and paint things and get the store ready to open. So it was a very interesting start. But a couple of years into that tech job, I kind of decided I'm going to make the jump. I, I can't afford to not pursue this dream and made the jump to full-time Ball and & Buck and moved into a bigger store on Newberry Street in Boston and grew that and fast forward. And now I've got Ball & Buck running, and, have a great team that runs that business. And I've kind of moved my time full over to American field.
1: That's great. So it seems like you're the kind of guy that's, very big picture oriented. You're a creator. You're someone who likes to come up with ideas, but you're also a doer too. You're talking about knocking down walls and actually doing the work, which I really appreciate. So you've handed the reins over to folks for Ball & Buck to keep things moving. But I'm curious, as you were the builder and the doer, you know, wearing all the hats, trying to do two jobs, apparently, I mean, you were in tech and in Ball & Buck, what were some learnings for you as you built the brand, went through the opening of the store, building your customer base? I mean, that's a lot. It's a big undertaking, and it's also a really crucial learning process, I'm sure. So what were some findings for you?
0: Yeah, I think a major one, and and I always kind of talk about this with people who are thinking about starting their own businesses, you're never going to be 100% ready, right? So the thought is, well, I'm going to wait until this business plan is exactly perfect, or until I've got the perfect collection or the greatest marketing launch plan, like you'll just wait and never actually do it. So I think, yes, having a plan is really important, but being so married to the idea of having this fully fledged out business plan model, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, before you get started, I think is not the right approach. My whole thing is always like, don't over-invest in the front, build a plan, get started, and then evolve and pivot as you go. I mean, as you can imagine, especially right now in this kind of new COVID, post-COVID world, like imagine if you built this perfectly eyes dotted T's cross business plan for a retail brand and then COVID hit, now you have to literally completely change the plan. So like, there's always evolution, there's always pivoting that happens. Sometimes those pivots are very small. Sometimes they're very big. But fundamentally, like I've never met someone that's started a business that has done exactly what they planned before they started it. So that would be one major thing. I think in terms of like building the brand and the portfolio, I think don't underestimate the fact that like you can't just put products on a website and expect to sell something. It's just not how it works, especially when you have the growing strength and market share of your Amazons and your big Ecom players that will outbid you on every search term and every SEO term and so on and so forth. So you're kind of going into a room with a 500 pound gorilla that's very, very hard to compete against, so you can't, so to win you have to change the game, not compete in the same game. And so in my instance, it was all about experience. It was all about lifestyle. And really building a multi-touch point full sensory experience. So in Boston, in our store on Newberry Street, we essentially brought in a mixed-use retail environment. So we had a barber shop in the store. We had had it kind of set up almost like a living room. And we changed the floor set almost every week. So it felt like a completely different place every time you came in. Add in kind of incense and leather shoes, and you kind of had a more dim lighting, antique type lighting. And it was kind of like this transformative, transporting experience to go into. And like we always said, you're leaving Boston and you're coming into the world of ball and buck when you step into the store. And and, and that was kind of the experience that led us to win Best of Boston every year we were operating and Best Barbershop in the world and so on.
1: I love that. So you really tried to build a brand's ethos or like brand lifestyle. And it wasn't just about like, okay, like let's be like a one-stop shop so you can get a shave and pick out some clothes. It was like, no, this is our world and we want you to get immersed in it.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it was not a sterile environment. It was very, it was a ball and buck house, right? It It was as if we had our own house So all the leather furniture and the vintage rugs and the floor, you know, was worn. It was all authentic, luckily for us. And we purchased all vintage antiques. A lot of brands with bigger budgets will manufacture those experiences. In our case, it was actually an authentic experience. But yeah, it was very much so a, you may come in and not make a purchase. And I was okay with that. But you could not come into the store and not leave with a lasting impression and one that you would tell your friends about. And that's why in that particular space that we started off in a temporary kind of pop up type environment for a year and a half, that location particularly wasn't the best location on Newberry Street by any means. It was around the corner, kind of off the street. And it was a downstairs space with basically limited store street frontage. And previous tenants had kind of turned over and turned over and turned over and turned over. over. No one could ever make that space work. And then we turned around and generated over $1,000 a square foot in rent and revenue. So it just goes to show like, if you really execute in a holistic manner and really create an environment that makes people believe, that's how you can stand out in a very competitive space.
1: Yeah, I know pop-ups were a big part of building the brands until you were able to roll out the flagship location. So you talked about one instance where it wasn't the best location, but you were really able to optimize it. Were there any other learnings or results as far as developing and refining your brick and mortar strategy? Because I know strategically the benefits of pop-ups is that you can reach new audiences or test in different areas and and see what the response is to the brand. But there's also an opportunity to test different things, right? Include different elements, you know, maybe really try to shape what the brand experience is all about. So what was your approach to that, you know, to pop up strategy specifically? And how did it ultimately shape where you guys ended up from an experience standpoint?
0: Yeah, and I think like kind of the whole predication of brick and mortar is a firm belief that I have, which is every brand really needs to have a home, a physical store. That doesn't mean they need to have a store in every city or every town in the nation or in the world, but there should be a place where a loyalist customer can come in and get the full experience. And that was validated time and time again with our flagship location in, in Boston. In terms of pop-up and how pop-up led into permanent or semi-permanent stores, I think it played an absolutely critical role. And you really hit the nail on the head in respect to the benefits to doing pop-up versus just going into a permanent. So one big one is testing different types of location, different types of settings, different neighborhoods from a location standpoint. But then again, it's Where is my customer? Because you can again look at demographic reporting and psychographic data and try to figure out on paper where your customer is, but it's such a nuanced type industry that, and I'll give you an example in a second here. But it's such a nuanced type industry that even if the on paper it makes sense, it could not work. So, for example, so we did that. Our first store was in the north end, which is by no means a retail sector at all. We were in a 500 square foot. Little, it was an old restaurant space, first floor office, basically zero foot traffic, but it kind of became this destination. The second location was where we ultimately stayed for quite some time. This was this downstairs off-street space that was an interesting layout, not atypical, very, very unique, and ultimately ended up working quite well. Then after that, the space that we were in was sold to another developer, so we were we moved out. And then we went to a second floor space, more like a Bonobos guide shop type model that's second floor off street. And that did not resonate as well. So then we moved back. These are all pop-ups. So we were able to kind of move and pivot as we learned. Then we moved to a Newbury frontage, arguably a much, much better location than our pre- our previous one. And it wasn't as good. And so I think that's where kind of the uniqueness of the space combined with the uniqueness of the brand created a synergy that resulted in much much higher returns versus like a cookie cutter type space trying to make that unique and more polished felt less authentic and ultimately resulted in less sales so having the pop-ups to be able to actually get real tangible results versus projections was absolutely invaluable
1: of that so definitely some valuable findings and experiences for you building up the Ball & Buck brand. Fast forward a bit, you've passed the day-to-day off to a very capable team, and now you're driving American field. So let's dig into that a little bit, because I think there are some really exciting things happening there. How did your experience, if at all, with Ball & Buck doing the pop-ups, shaping the experience, Building the business. Did any of those experiences kind of guide you to this next phase or, or next level in your career that you're in now? Would love to hear a bit of the backstory or or the inspiration behind American Field.
0: Yeah, I mean, simply put, I mean, the founding and the growth and the building journey of Ball and Buck was literally the genesis of founding American Field. So. Without Ball and Buck, there would be no American field. And that was because I was able to literally live firsthand through the challenges of building a brand and learning that it's a lot harder than you think. And to be successful, you have to not only work really hard, but get a lucky and put yourself in the right place in many different sectors of the business. And so, kind of the, the formation of AF. Began after attending some markets similar to the ultimate concept of American Field in different cities and states. And it was like, hey, this is a really great way to put our best foot forward in terms of our brand, but also get into a place where we would be the best suited to succeed versus spending marketing dollars on SEO or AdWords, right? So when I think about Allocation of marketing dollars and then trying to have the stickiest, highest traction result. If you go head to head with Amazon for men's denim, like you're going to be spending so much money and your website will not be as optimized as Amazon ever. And so you'll lose that. Rather, in an event where I can be face to face with a consumer or someone interested in the brand, like they can understand what we're all about and they can touch and feel the product and they can learn the story. And not only will I make that sale, but we'll also end with that customer being a loyalist and an advocate. So it was clear that an event strategy and the ability to access markets around the nation and test new cities around the nation was super valuable. There was nothing like that happening in Boston. I was in Boston, so it was kind of like, you know, hey, Mark Hanson from Topo Designs and Mike mohar from Taylor Stitch and... Chris over at New Balance, all all these owners and founders that I had met on my founding and growth journey at Ball and Buck, I was like, "Hey, I'm going to put together this marketplace. So I'd love to have you join us." And everyone showed up, forty brands over one weekend, and stood behind their tables, and kind of the rest is history.
1: Well, that's great. So looking at AF through the lens of the brands and also the customers, right? I mean, what? Were the initial objectives for you in kind of building the mission statement or even business strategy for a f and how has it evolved if at all? I mean, we'll kind of get into the current climate in a little bit, but would love to hear how you connected the dots between customer pain points and brand pain points to kind of shape what the a f promise, so to speak would be,
0: yeah, so I think from a brand standpoint, the need and the pain was how do I? Fundamentally make more sales, but also grow my customer list for online post-show sales and meet other brands and generate PR, right? And like there isn't a single, and I still believe this to this day, there isn't a single higher ROI use of capital than being able to go to an event and check all of those boxes. Because over a two-day weekend, and this is in normal times, you'd have three to 5,000 targeted consumers circulating through an event where you'd be able to make sales that would not only cover your booth costs and your travel costs, but generally make level of profit just in the event itself. Plus you'd leave with hundreds of email addresses collected, social follows. Plus you'd leave with friends and relationships of like-minded founders and entrepreneurs to do collaborative events, collaborative products, collaborative marketing strategies, giveaways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we had press, buyers, media floating through the event. So it was like a launch pad of success for great brands. So I think that was really the genesis. And and another thing, when you're starting off in the brand world, it's hard to find that kind of right customer, especially when we're thinking about high quality premium goods. And so if I'm a brand that's very new and I'm sitting next side a Red Wing Boots, that's very well known, Red Wing markets to their list, those customers come and then they see our high end wax cotton jackets from ball and buck and they say oh wow okay i get it i love these boots and i love this jacket so kind of the complementary nature and the curation of the vendor set at each event would help drive a snowball effect of customers where you're having all of the brands market to their like customers with complementary products and then all the brands kind of sell outfits across different brand sets so that was kind of from the brand standpoint, where the va- what the genesis was, where the value was, and why AF is unique. And I think that dovetails directly into the consumer side of this, which is fundamentally we're moving into a place of this kind of fast fashion, Amazon plastic packaging, fluorescent lighting, you know, sterile shopping experience. And I think that consumers then people really want to have a connection with the things that they consume at a deeper level. And so, as I kind of mentioned, just all of the challenges with competing with these huge 500-pound e-commerce gorillas, it's like, you just aren't going to win that battle. What battle can you win? And it's that face-to-face. And so I think it satisfies the consumer's desire to have an intimate interaction with a brand founder and kind of feel their passion And then the product that you ultimately purchase, that's a product of that entrepreneur's dream or that founder's passion. Like It means so much more than just ordering something off Amazon that you click the button, add it to cart, and it shows up two days later. It's just a completely different experience where you're really able to engage with and feel a part of the story of building and and supporting this person's passion.
1: Yeah. Some good stuff I really want to dig into. But first, I do want to ask, as far as the typical brand mix, you you noted the association of more established or known brands with up and coming ones. What's the percentage shakeout on, on average? Would you say, are you primarily... Bringing in the smaller, growing brands, and just identifying a few more established partners to broaden the mix. I mean, what does that look like typically? Yeah,
0: so the curation process is done in in two kind of forms. One is actual categorical mix. We set caps on category subcategory. So the broad categories are men's focused, women's focused, in general, right? Meaning home goods, pet, food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then we have the subcategories like bottoms, tops, swim, sleep, et cetera. And so there's going to be a mix. It's not going to all be jewelry, which is, from my experience, very common at other markets where you go in and it's just jewelry after candle after jewelry after jewelry after candle. (laughs) It's just not interesting, right? So we, even though we could sell and bring more brands in that sell candles and jewelry, we just don't. So that's the first wave of curation. In terms of the matrix and the makeup of, let's say, more established to less established, it's a scale. So there's an intentional reasoning why we we like the mix. And the reason is this, larger brands have larger audience, right? So they're able to recruit and put the message out to more people to get more attendance to have more eyeballs on all of the brands in the market. So there's a huge value in that. From a small brand standpoint, there's this level of authenticity that you just can't get. And it's very, very hard to maintain as a brand grows just due to the nature of growth in general. And so by kind of combining the two of those together, what you do is you end up with an environment where you have the reach of the big brands the authenticity of the small brands, and then a big mix of brands that fall kind of in between the two. And that just gives the consumer and the shopping experience, like the trust and validation of, oh, I know Maker's Mark. I know Bullet Bourbon. I know L.L. Bean. And then meeting Brothers Artisan Oil, who's a local brand that makes fully natural beard waxes and beard oils. It's like, oh, that's so cool. Okay, so like these are, if I like this, then I should like this. It makes that connection easy for the consumer to understand.
1: Yep. You're kind of bringing that recommendation engine, so to speak, to the physical world. So it's like a full circle moment, right? Like when you kind of used to go into or still go into local shops and the person knows you and they're able to make those types of recommendations. You're kind of doing that work up front and it seems like it's a very thoughtful process. So I'm sure both your consumers and your brand partners really appreciate that. And I think this ties into my next question for you around the emphasis on community. You spoke briefly about the power of speaking to the brand founder or the person that made the thing, right? And I think we're in this realm of really zeroing in on the future of independent businesses, the emphasis on shopping small, especially in these times. But then on the business side, there's still that need to scale and turn a profit too. And I I want to go back to this notion of making shopping fun again, which is something that you guys have on your website. And I guess I'm trying to get to the heart of why this is a thing. You know what I mean? Because we we all know this is the fundamentals of powerful and profitable retail, but there's still this gap, this challenge, I think, for so many brands. You've mentioned the need or, or the desire for people to keep up with Amazon and, and how it's kind of impossible, right? Do you think that brands are kind of chasing their tails, trying to keep pace with these larger entities with so much bandwidth and, and so much money, frankly, that they're not kind of getting to these fundamentals and focusing on those fundamentals in a realistic way. I I guess I'm trying to just understand why this is still such a significant challenge for retailers, frankly, of all sizes and brands of all sizes.
0: Yeah. I mean, in short, yes, I think that it's really hard and there's a lot of distraction when it comes to competing head to head with your Amazons and your Jet.coms and all these other major e-com players what i've seen both through the ball and buck experiences that i have but also through all of the other brand founders that i've seen is is like the critical crux of their growth and success is all about the ability to create grow and preserve their community of loyalists and so what that means in simple terms is in my opinion, it's getting in front of consumers face-to-face and kind of showing them the love, right? Because Amazon can do that. And even if there's commercials that highlight all the, quote-unquote, small business support, <laughs> it's, it's very, very different. You know, an Amazon, like the perfect Amazon product is something that checks the boxes and is the lowest price. There's no character and there's no pride or passion in the creation of that product. The perfect product at an AF event or in a boutique store or in a boutique brand is something that has a genuine story and authenticity in the making of the product that isn't just calculated and isn't just corner cutting and like the simplest possible product. And I think that understanding and embracing that like that's how these brands can build communities that can create sustained growth and build an online community where consumers will come and shop directly from you. The alternative cycle is manufacturing and/or selling these kind of more cookie-cutter commodity type products that <laughs> check the boxes but aren't really unique. So I'll call them commodity type products versus authentic kind of passion type products. And we're focused at AF on those passion type brands and passion type products.
1: And now a word from our sponsor. Treasure Data's Customer Data Platform, or CDP, helps you securely unify customer data
0: across teams and systems to better identify, engage, acquire, and retain customers. Customer experience is more important than ever, but do you have the right data and insights to keep your prospects and customers engaged? Talk to a customer data expert today at treasuredata.com slash retail.
1: So what was the impact of COVID on the AF business? I mean, obviously these in-person experiences, these events are so crucial to building your community, creating those connections, making shopping fun again. So, I mean, how did you go about developing a response plan or were there any pivots? I mean, we heard so much about brands that were trying to adapt either their services or their experiences in in order to keep things moving. I mean, what path did AF have to go on? And I guess initially in the first wave, and now we're kind of navigating as a second wave in a way. So, I mean, what's been happening from that standpoint?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it, the core product that we offered going into 2020 was a two-day, 5,000-person event. So that was, yeah. the pivot was, that was shut off. <laughs> yeah. So it was a complete pivot necessary. The good news was, is that we already had kind of some ideas and initiatives that were already in discussion that were accelerated, the first one that we came to market with was called AF Live, which is a digital brand summit where we had a huge group of amazing brands from Faribault Woolen Mills to Red Wing Boots to Taylor Stitch to Tanner Goods. I mean, Farity brand, a bunch of amazing brands join us for a Sunday summit in which we had six simultaneous brand stages with the ability for consumers to jump from stage to stage and view a live simulcast of the brand founders and then ask them questions in a live environment. And also it was dovetailed to that was the ability for consumers to shop the brands directly from their brand experience page. And then they would save a little bit on their purchase, right? So that was AF Live and that launched in April. Now we've evolved that into what's called AF Fireside, which is a video podcast that then gets extracted and and pushed out to the podcast platforms, which essentially gives brands the opportunity to tell their story and engage with our team and our mission, but really understand what they're all about. So that our consumers are able to find and discover these brands during a time when physically discovering them at our events just isn't allowed. So that's kind of the two early pivots from a digital standpoint. The other major focus, and and this had been brewing for some time, was product or offering that's called AF Spaces which is a major focus for us, which essentially bridges the gap between brands and landlords through an online marketplace platform that lets brands search for and locate amazing spaces and then move into those spaces in a much more streamlined fashion than like a traditional lease negotiation process, which can take four to six months. So our process, if everyone is moving at the right pace, can take a process that again is four to six months and make it 10 to 15 days. So it's a drastic reduction in time to occupancy, which allows brands to be even more nimble in terms of physical retail and take advantage of the fact that you know there's a lot of really phenomenal opportunities out there right now. And so AF Spaces has been built and rolled out and we've onboarded landlords and we just made an amazing brand placement in the Empire Stores in Dumbo with a brand called Shot New York, which is like iconic leather motorcycle jacket brand. So those were kind of the two major pivots was that digital shift and then this AF Spaces platform launch.
1: I love that you're evidently addressing two of the most critical trends I think happening in retail. Now, even for the big players, it's the shift to digital, right? I mean, with consumers trying to minimize if and when they go to stores or trying to be more more cognizant of, of those trips. So they're spending more time and money online. But then also on the retailer side, we're hearing a lot of conversations around how landlord agreements and partnerships really need to be rethought and it needs to be more of a partnership versus just sign the contract and hope for the best, especially in these times. So you're kind of tackling two opposite ends of the spectrum that are both really having a significant impact on the retail industry at large. So good on you guys, number one. And number two, what is your mindset now in in the current context where so much is still uncertain, right? I mean, I'm in New Jersey, so we're seeing rates start to go up, new guidelines and updates. I mean, it's happening daily, if not hourly. So the jury is still out, I think, on a lot of things, which ultimately impacts businesses. So what are you, the AF team, focusing on and how will this kind of dictate your strategic priorities from a business standpoint? Like are you are you gonna do more digital in the event of another pivot that needs to happen? I mean, what's a focal point for you?
0: Yeah, I think the starting point to what guides the focus is what are the knowns. So the unknown is just the cases and the surging and the historical trending that there is like a winter wave, right? We don't know what that's going to be. We know that there is kind of a surge there. I think a known is is that consumers for as long as humans have been (laughs) in cities and such love shopping. It's something that's fun to do. So I don't believe that's going anywhere. I don't believe that that's going to shift 100% 100% online because i think the act of shopping is like a fun activity. It's not just consuming. It's the act of shopping and exploring and touching and feeling and it's like something you do. So i don't i don't think that's going anywhere. And from a statistical standpoint, 91% of all retail transactions occur in brick and mortar environments versus online. So there's still a major major lean towards brick and mortar. That doesn't mean it's not going to shift slightly it will i think physical is not going anywhere it's you know it's harder now than it's been in terms of the actual direction that we're taking it's yes we have the digital so i think it's i want to have and empower our brands if we can't put them in front of consumers face to face or put them in front of thousands over a short period of time i still want to give them a the stage to tell their story so that's af live fireside. So that's the podcast. That's the video. That's where we can help these brands get their word out there. So that's continues to be a focus and we'll be launching a 10 episode series in the next two weeks. So that's really exciting. In terms of physical, like market type events, the shift for us has been to go outdoors, to go fewer brands, longer durations in terms of like a multi weekend series versus a single weekend to spread traffic throughout and to do it in a way that's even a more distilled and curated vendor mix. So like, for example, we're partnered with a venue in Denver, Colorado called the dairy block, where we're bringing in 15 brands to do an apres ski themed holiday market in an outdoor heated alley where there's well over 10, 15, 20 feet between the different standalone brand activation kiosks. And then that'll run Friday, Saturday, Sunday between Thanksgiving and Christmas, giving consumers the opportunity to shop with space, shop with confidence, and be able to do it in such a way where it's just, it's not gonna be like shoulder to shoulder, which was kind of the norm last year at our events where it's like they were full, right? So it's just evolved a little bit. In terms of AF spaces and and the ability for brands to open their own standalone brick and mortar stores, I think it's there may not have ever have been a better time to do it. Uh, I think there are phenomenal spaces that are becoming available that have never been available, that have been locked into five or 10 year leases. I think the rates are favorable. And I think landlords are willing to be reasonable in respect to negotiations around shelter in place and things like that, and like rent stipulations around that. So I think it's a great time when everyone's saying, (laughs) you know, I don't know what the saying is, but when everyone runs one way, you run the other way. There's an element of that to this, which is like, just be aware of the opportunities that are surfacing and the touch and go-ness. I mean, I'm sure you saw that, news about the vaccine, who knows if and when that'll actually hit the market, but the second that hits the market, there's going to be a tremendous surge of people probably before they've got the vaccine to want to go do stuff and shop and all that. And then as that catches up, there will be the ability for people to do that. So I think just not getting too distracted, I guess, by the news and running the course and and knowing that so much has changed in six months Like, where are we going to be in another six months? We don't really know.
1: Which is where that agility and and I guess frequent what if scenario planning, right? Like, what if this happens? What if that happens? I mean, you may not have all of the pieces together, but at least having those discussions, I'm sure, especially for the smaller businesses that are Really trying to make the best decisions where every dollar of investment makes an impact and counts. Having those conversations up front, I'm sure, is going to be really critical moving forward and, and being willing to change direction if needed. But as we start to close up our, our conversation, Mark, we've talked a lot about the AF business, what makes it unique. And I think, you know, just what I'm gathering, the thoughtfulness that you guys have for every decision that you make, even From a pivoting standpoint, that the fact that you're trying to stay true to what makes the brand partnerships impactful and the consumer experience impactful and really trying to adapt it to digital, I think is extremely thoughtful. And it seems like you're just very thoughtful from a business strategy perspective. So I do want to ask you, as you start to shape your vision for 2021, knowing that everything is still largely up in the air, are there any certain trends or tech innovations that get you personally excited and your wheels kind of spinning about the future of AF and what else you could possibly bring to market?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that really gets me excited is this AF Spaces platform, because what it does is is it takes a market in an ecosystem that has forever been closed and behind closed doors and very fragmented, that being retail leasing, takes it to a place where for the first time ever, there's actually a market economy supply and demand curve applied to space, to first floor retail. What that means is, number one, and I lived in the West Village for five years, walking down Blaker Street, there was a shit ton of vacancy. So Number one, there will be more cool concepts and more cool shops and people being able to open their store and live their dream. And for a consumer, that gets me excited because it's not fun to walk down a street with half of the stores closed, right? And they were closed because there was a disconnect between the asking rent and the willingness of a brand to pay. So that's a huge win. Number two, I think there's a huge opportunity for brands that speak to consumers that may not have had the opportunity to see and interact with a brand like that to do that. And so by having like this platform where if I'm a brand, I can go on and say, Hey, we were thinking about opening a store in Austin, Texas. Okay. Here are all the cool spaces. And I could be moving in in two weeks. I mean, it drastically changes the dynamic of a system that took four, six, 12 months to negotiate. It's a painful process. It's a Scary process. Now it's like a brand getting an Airbnb for the weekend. Oh, let's go try this one. Okay, great. You're in. So that, I think, opens up so many doors for new brands and great shopping experiences to happen, but also gives consumers more to see, more to do, more to shop, more to experience. So I think that's a really exciting, major paradigm shift in the retail space for the first time. So that's what gets me the most excited.
1: That's awesome. So to close things out, obviously we have a lot of DTC and startup brands really trying to make their mark, build brand awareness. So I think a lot of this will resonate with them, but I think, even among our executives that are with larger retail businesses, your, your takeaways around community building partnerships will also resonate. But to both parties, do you have any closing thoughts or words of inspiration to kind of get them through these uncertainties and kind of start to flesh out their strategy for the new year? Because again, we touched a lot on the uncertainty and where the market may or may not be going. You touched a lot on opportunities. So any closing thoughts to kind of distill it down into a point of inspiration or two?
0: Yeah, I think the first, from a brand standpoint, I think the first critical element is focus on the customers that you have and make them loyalists, right? Because there's a lot of e-commerce noise and spending right now. So it's, it's very, very challenging to get new customers in a cost-efficient way. So focus on taking the people that you have and making them the best customers they can possibly be and treat them with care and show them the love, right? So that's number one. Number two, I think, is don't be afraid to pivot and address evolving customer demand what people want now that they're spending more time in the outdoors and spending more time at home is a lot different than what it was a year ago. So if you haven't changed your collection and you haven't changed your product mix, like it's probably not good. Like you got to pivot number three. And I touched this a little bit before, but there's a lot of negative things and sad things that have come from the pandemic. And like, embrace that but also embrace the fact that there are opportunities that exist because of it and you know this may be that the perfect time to try a storefront for the first time or go to an event or host a socially distanced gathering for your core customer base in your home city or or do something that's other people aren't doing, right? There's a negative space and being aware of that negative space and, and exploring the opportunities around that and how you can fill that space shouldn't be overlooked.
1: Right, Mark. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time out, for sharing your story as a entrepreneur, a business builder, and now as the leader of AF. So many exciting things going on for the business. So thanks again so much for breaking it down for us.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on.
1: And for everyone listening out there, if you have any follow-up questions for Mark, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at our points. We'd love to facilitate those follow-up conversations. We think now more than ever, connecting with your fellow business leaders, business builders is is crucial. We think there could be a lot of great follow-up discussions to come from this episode, so please get in touch. We'll include in the show notes some details around AF if you want to learn more and possibly get involved with that community. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. Our goal for Retail Remix is to have candid conversations like this with business leaders, executives, entrepreneurs who are really helping shape the future of the industry. If you subscribe, you'll get alerts when new episodes are available. Thanks again to everyone out there listening and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.